Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. I hope you have your Bible with you. And I hope that you'll read and follow along. And I hope you won't take anything that is said as truth until it's confirmed there in Scripture. It's important that we keep our Bibles open, that we follow along, that we understand, and that we obey. I'd like to begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 13. We begin a new chapter this morning, and this will cover the story of Samson. For those of you who've been looking forward to this part as perhaps the uh, part that you know about in this book, well, we're finally here. And there are actually four chapters given over to Samson. He gets more ink than anyone else. And uh, we'll begin reading in verse 1. And then we'll ask for the Lord's help uh, down through about verse 5. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born a child, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again with our Bibles open, we ask for your help to understand what you have written. Having understood it, we ask for your help to obey it. Lord, give us the opportunity to learn with a clear mind. Lord, sort out things we may have brought in here with us that would be a distraction and have total jurisdiction over this class. Lord, be our teacher and may we be your students. We ask this in your name. Amen. There are some passages of Scripture that you will find, if you've not learned already, that are understood quite differently when you read them as an adult or study them as an adult as you understood them when you were younger when you were a child uh, in perhaps a Sunday school setting or even in your home parents lap with a storybook open and a lot of things are like this in life the same things we would understand as a child become completely different, take on a, a, a more uh, deeper significance or added meaning the older we get. Uh, you might have noticed this, say, with certain movies that you watched as a kid. You grow up and you have your own kids and you decide to turn on a movie. Hey, this is what daddy watched when he was younger. And all of a sudden you realize there's a lot more to this movie than I thought when I was a kid. And I'm not so sure if I want my kids to watch it. Uh, That's practically every Disney movie I ever watched. They seem to be just loaded with innuendo that a kid won't get but an adult would. And this chapter, 13, 14, 15, 16, they're going to be no different. Uh, There's going to be times where... Uh, We're going to recognize the Samson that we learned about as a child. And then there's going to be parts of Samson we're going to recognize and hope our kids don't ask us about when we get home. Uh, Because these are things that only uh, an adult uh, and the the veil of of innocence that we had as a children is, is now gone. We see clearly that this man is not a hero. In the sense of that definition we knew as we grew up. So we're going to get into these things. But before we do, we've actually got a handful of verses that we left over from last week. And to make sure that we're consistent as we teach through verse by verse. Even though we're summarizing some of the contents of the narrative. There were three other minor judges at the end of chapter 12. Let me read this quickly. That's verse 8 in the previous chapter. After him... 
Ibzan, Bethlehem, judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters and gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Isban died and was buried in Bethlehem. After him, Elon of the Zebulonites judged Israel. He judged Israel ten years. Then Elon, the Zebulite, Zebulonite, died and was buried at Iyana, I guess is how that's pronounced, in the land of Zebulon. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He and forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried at Parathenon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. So three more minor judges that have the same reputation as the previous three minor judges. And that is there's not a lot said about them. And that being the case, our tendency to want to teach or preach through the Old Testament in a biographical sense. You know what I mean by biographical? We want to pull the, the people in the Old Testament out from the Old Testament and develop a character sketch, maybe a character study on their life and uh, model our lives after their strengths, as it were. You've heard sermon series is like this. But with that as our tendency, it, it really puts these minor judges in a spot where they don't get to be in the bulletin very often. Because there's not a, a lot to work with as far as building a character sketch about a guy. And all we know is how many kids he had and the donkeys that they rode on. It, it, there's just not a lot there. Same as when we studied them before. So I was determined at least we'd have their names in the bulletin today. You saw them there. The problem with looking at the Old Testament and teaching through it biographically is that it's actually looking in the wrong direction. No matter what we're reading or where we're reading it in the scriptures, the, the dramatic theme of the entire Bible is behold your God. So when we're holding up other people, it's as if we're saying we found something more interesting. We'd like to be more like David or even Samson. When really the purpose is to hold up God and view the difference between him and ourselves and cling to his son Jesus as our savior. That's the point of the Bible. So looking at these men and how they're attached to the rest of the book, which is pointing to Jesus, uh, there's a number of things that could be said. Um, looking at it in its context, the previous story has to do with Jephthah. And Jephthah was childless, wasn't he? He only had one daughter, and he sacrificed her, carrying out a vow that he shouldn't have vowed to God. We studied that last week. But then you pick up right where that leaves off. Verse 8, Isben has 30 sons and 30 daughters, and he takes 30 daughters for his 30 sons and 30 sons for his daughters. So he's got 60 daughters. Uh, descendants and their wives I'm sure of anybody that they probably very quickly adopted the idea of drawing names for Christmas gifts don't you think <laughs> that's just way too large of a family to even keep up with it over against this man who's childless so we look at that and see this huge uh, discrepancy between it and this other man who's who's got sons and grandsons and we instinctively want to ask, well, why the big discrepancy? And uh, Henry, Matthew Henry, you've heard of him as a commentator. He's the one that's to put this very simply. Both are the Lord's doing. If we understand what we're reading. So why? Why does he decide to order the affairs, details of our life so uh, differently? In Acts 12... You've got Peter in prison, and miraculously he's, he's uh, let out. And uh, we see him continue in the record of Acts and to God's glory. Same chapter, James, the brother of John, is executed by the same man who had imprisoned Peter. And you wonder, well, why did one get out 
And why did the other not? And what could James have done through the rest of the book of Acts? We don't know. God is determining these things. Why aren't they both saved? Why don't I have children? Why do I have too many children? Uh, These are questions that we ask that we just don't know. And though we like to know all the reasoning, I think this is a good case to prepare us for what we're going to see in chapters 13 through 16. We haven't even begun to start adding up the questions we're going to have by the end of our study of Samson and why the Lord used him and how he used him is perplexing. The whole story is perplexing. It's full of riddles. It's full of secrets. The story of Samson at the same time attracts us and puts us off, pulling us in different directions logically and emotionally until we're left with a broken man whom we cannot help but feel for, even though he's brought on himself his own ruin. It's like an accident we can't look away from. And if we, even if we don't understand him, Even if we don't like him by the end. You know, I liked him as a kid. I don't like him as an adult. Either way, I think we identify with him because he's like us and we are like him. And that's probably the most disturbing part of the whole lesson. So one way I thought of, heard it put this way, found it to be very helpful as as looking at this story before we even get into it. I don't know if you remember, but uh, Mother Teresa... And Princess Diana both died within a few days of one another. And the way in which the world mourned their deaths were very different, uh, one as opposed to the other. In fact, uh, there were people later, as time would go on, who would write critically, who studied the behavior of cultures and how they act and what they do and what they say and some would agree with what these had said and some would not but if you were to add up all the articles and the interviews and the the news spots and the documentaries most of the the word count was given over not to mother teresa but to princess diana they were very different from one another too although they were both very well known with with mother teresa She spent her entire existence uh, in the betterment of others beside herself. She never really cared what she looked like or what she wore. In fact, one picture of her looks like any picture of her. She wore the same outfit. What she would say and what she would do mattered, but it was very few and far between that you'd hear her make a statement or a comment. She was busy all the time. Now, on the other hand, Princess Diana... There was a lot of money to be made in copying her style. What she wore and where she wore it and whom she was with at afternoon tea. All of those were things the tabloids couldn't get enough of. Uh, People wanted to be like her. And the difference is Mother Teresa was a fine example of a hero as we might describe it. But it's very hard to identify with a hero, usually when they're so far out ahead of us. In our everyday lives, not too many women could identify with Mother Teresa. Most of the days they spent were not like the days Mother Teresa spent. But on the other hand, with Princess Diana, they almost felt as if they were a lot closer to her because especially when she would uh, push back on some of the expectations that people had of her, in somewhat of an articulation of, hey, I'm just like anybody else, and it's not really fair for the expectations to be so high. That was applauded. Um, She was what we have far too many of today, but not so much then. She's a good example of a celebrity. Everybody pays attention to celebrities. Now, the difference between the two and, and having too much of a diet of either one, a hero... To worship a hero is to, be, is to feel quite like a failure, usually. We don't live the life of a hero. That's up here and we're down here. But then to pattern our lives after a celebrity usually feels, leaves us feeling quite lonely. Because the attention on the celebrity is not the attention that we would receive ourselves. When we read through this story, we're going to see parts where Samson looks like a hero. 
and parts where Samson looks like a celebrity. And neither one of us are, of those uh, boxes are going to save us. You see, that's what he's supposed to be, is a savior, a judge. He's going to deliver the people. Heroes can't deliver us, and celebrities can't deliver us. And we can identify with some as opposed to others. But what we're going to see here is this hero slash celebrity that winds up making a royal mess of his life that only points to the true Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. So keep those things in your mind as we move through this. Now we read a portion of chapter 13, and chapter 13 is given over to Samson's nativity. Really, there's, there's, other than Christ, there's not as much said about a young man's birth. Uh, maybe Samuel. But here, this is strikingly similar to what we read later about Jesus. So we're, we're told that his calling is a prenatal calling, where the angel meets with the mother of Samson to describe what's going to be expected of him. And uh, that is introduced immediately after the people again did what was wrong or evil in the sight of the Lord. And then we're introduced to Manoah, which would be his father. And it's uh, somewhat disappointing to watch how this man seems to be playing catch up the whole time. He's, he's just behind uh, what the angel of the Lord is revealing and what his wife knows. But the big news, the good news, you are barren. And the, the, the angel of the Lord actually says that to her. You are barren. As if she wasn't aware of the fact that she had no children. But immediately follows, you will conceive and bear a child. Now, there's particulars given over as to how this boy is going to be different. And things that are be expl- expected of him. Uh, no wine or strong drink. Nothing unclean to be eaten. Later touched. Uh, no razor on his head. We understand this to be the Nazarite vow. There's a lot to be said about that. And, uh, even Paul the Apostle seems to have uh, taken, at, for a period of time, the Nazarite vow. And then this line, He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Interesting that this is different than all the others. The word begin. He will kickstart what will be a revolution against the Philistines. Uh, later in that chapter, uh, Manoah, the father, asked the Lord to speak to him too because from that point only uh, the nameless mother of Samson knows what's going on. The Lord answers. He makes a visit. He declines a dinner much like uh, Gideon tried to offer. At this point, though, he said, set it on fire similar to before. This is going to be a burnt offering. And then he gives a sign where he steps into the burning sacrifice of food. And then lifts up into the air through the fire. Uh, that's quite a, quite a trick to do. Which proves to them they've seen God. Manoah thinks he's going to die. And uh, Samson's mother said, if that were the case, we'd be gone already. He's received our sacrifice and he's given us direction as to our son. And verse 24, the last few verses, two verses of the chapter, these are important. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. That sounds good. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahnedan between Zorah and Eshtal. So what we've got at the end of the chapter, in addition to Othniel who the Lord came upon. We read that previously. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. We read about that just a few weeks ago. But then we've got this word in the ESV, the Lord stirs Samson. Very interesting word. It's unlike the others. And that word is often used because words had different types of meaning, all kind of in the same realm. But it was described of tools or of a foot or of something used to pound something some translations actually use the word I like better than stir disturb and that's going to be somewhat of a glimpse into the rest of this story where God comes on Othniel clothes Gideon he disturbs Samson and in ways we haven't seen as of yet Transition from 13 to 14 skips completely over Samson's childhood. We don't have no idea what happened when he grew up. 
When we get to chapter 14, he is a young man and acting like it. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, among all our people, that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. That is verbatim the last verse of this book, Judges, the lowest point in Israel's history. There's no king, and everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Well, Samson's doing the same thing. Other translations say for... Uh, I forget how it's put. It's not in my own eyes. Uh, Somebody got a King James. She pleases me well. Basically the same thing. Verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. How do you suppose mom and dad really felt about this? You know, they'd been living in the promise of this boy's birth from months earlier when the angel of the Lord explained what would happen. Uh, I don't know how you feel about the way uh, modern families raise their children, but a lot of emphasis goes on just the right stuff for the kids. You can just imagine what it would be like when you've got two parents who know that this one's going to be the one to save Israel. So when he comes home and says, I want this Philistine girl, they think he's ready to just derail the whole thing. You could imagine they're absolutely besides themselves at his uh, determination to do exactly what he shouldn't. Um, The verse tells us, though, look at it. Father and mother didn't know, verse 4, it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. What was from the Lord? Evidently, the, 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 the details of Samson's love life. Because the way the words are written here, this, the narrator is telling us behind the scenes that his parents don't even know it, but God is orchestrating what's going on here and all for the purpose of kicking off an argument between Philistines and Israelites that didn't exist up until that point. Doesn't mean that his parents were wrong to object to their son's disobedience. It doesn't mean that Samson's right in what he's doing. But think about that for a minute. This is one of those verses that as an adult doesn't make sense. We didn't pick up on that when we were kids. How many parents have stood in the shoes or the sandals of Manoah and his unnamed wife watching their son about to throw a lot of their work down the drain and wondering how in the world we're going to get through this? And how would they respond if someone came by after he'd slammed the door and left and said, you know what, God's probably got everything planned and he's working through this. No, God doesn't work through that. He works through positive and encouraging stuff. That's that radio station, right? Caleb, positive and encouraging. They don't tell you this because it's not positive and it's not encouraging and we don't think that that's the way the Lord does business. So this is one of those perplexing, tension-building verses that seem to really pull our interest into the story. What is going on here? And the point of this, as devastating as it might be to be a parent watching their children willfully turn away from the Lord, despite our best attempts intentions to teach them well and to love them and to guide them and to own our own mistakes and let them see it it still goes dreadfully opposite as what we would expect what we don't know may prove to be our deepest comfort there's a lot that these parents don't know yet and I don't know that they ever knew and in our lives there's a lot that we don't know that might be our comfort if we understand it for what it is, and that is God's sovereignty. So back to the story. The status quo between the Hebrews and the Philistines was what needed to be disrupted. 
uh, unlike any of the times they had been in bondage to any of the other cities. It was a very cruel enslavement and uh, there were no relationships. They wanted out and it was easy enough to see that they'd pull themselves up together to throw these people off who were stealing our crops and violating our women and, and all these awful things. This is different though. This is conquer by assimilation. You notice that Samson went down to Timna. There's no border patrol there. We're going to see that he freely moves across the border. It's quite open. And the Philistines were so superior to the Israelites in their culture, in their weaponry, uh, in their agriculture. You name it, they were better. So what was not likable about them from the place of the, of the Israelites? And to say that they'd been in, in bondage for 40 years is almost like saying... That's the amount it's going to take to get this out of your system. Same as the 40 years the Israelites wandered around in the wilderness for not listening to God. So they're at a a tipping point here. This could be the end of them. Not that they're destroyed and killed with the sword, but they're just absorbed into a group of people and absolutely lose their identity as the children of God forever. That's what's going on. So there's no war drums beating. There's no place to just put in the right general and then start firing shots. They have to actually agitate the Philistines. And nobody wants to do it. So this is what God is doing here. The situation is going to have to change if Israel's to be delivered. Look at verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnath. Here again, they're crossing the border. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward roaring, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. That's kind of a violent term, rushed on him, not clothed him. You know, like you put one arm in, the other arm, and then button it up. No, this is a rush, kind of like an emotional type of description. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Culturally speaking, this description there just doesn't really explain much to us. It's not often that we tear goats, do we? As one might tear a young goat. Next picnic, you know, Labor Day. uh, We'll all gather, maybe swim a little while, then we'll tear a goat. Um, We don't really get that, but a a younger goat, the smaller ones, were easier to dispatch. Well, this is a full-grown lion. And with his bare hands, Samson kills him. So this is quite a story. Uh, but look what he says. He did not tell his father or his mother what he'd done. Why not? Because when that lion's dead, that violates his vow, doesn't it? It's not supposed to touch a carcass. So why would he tell his parents? His parents are going to get on him for that. So he leaves it unsaid. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. So he still has that going in the background. So the story, what's the purpose of it? Why this in the episode? Well, it'll help us understand his riddle at the wedding party. Um, And it keeps us interested. But I think what's going on here is what I've studied and read. God is bringing Samson along. If he's going to wage war on the Philistines, he's going to need some, some, some confidence training. So start out with a lion. A guy that can kill a lion with his bare hands is not someone you pick a fight with in a bar. If that's his reputation. Uh, In other words, you bring more to that fight than just a couple of men. We'll see that in the chapters to come. But what he's doing here, God is by small degrees building his confidence for larger uh, things down the road. Look at verse 8. After some days he returned to take her, that's going to be his wife. He turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. So that thing's still laying there. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out in his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them. He didn't tell them about killing the lion, but now he's giving them honey from a beehive out of his rib cage. And needless to say, but he did not tell them that he'd scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So notice a few things. Time for the wedding, the, uh, I guess the preliminaries, the betrothal is over, all but. And uh, Samson finds something clearly he isn't, isn't expecting, the 
beehive and the carcass of the lion he killed. And it violates his Nazarite vow, but he does it anyway, and twice. Uh, it's one thing to have a lion attack you and need to kill it for survival. It's another thing to go play with its body in order to get honey from it. So he keeps his information to himself, knowing his parents won't approve. But one out of three of his vows have been broken. We'll see the second one here in a minute. The third, not until he meets you-know-who, Delilah. Verse 10, his father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. We know what that's about. It has to do with that lion and honey. What's stronger than a, than a lion and what's sweeter than honey? That's the answer to the riddle. But from what we just read there, it seems that in Philistia, the young men were responsible for throwing the party. And just to give you some background on the Philistines, they were the ones that made famous the seven-day eating and drinking feast. And uh, you just assign all the, the things you would never want to say out loud, and you're probably uh, still far off. These people were known for their debauchery. Uh, to say that this was a keg party is not even to, to you know, wink at what's going on. To say that Samson is going to remain pure from his uh, vow not to have alcohol... No, that, that one's gone too. And it, it's, it's funny how in, 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 with the Hebrews, the parents are the ones that put all this together. But here, uh, for so the young men used to do. That's as far as the feast goes. You know, they, the, they get the, uh, uh, the fraternity to help them with that, I guess. Um, seven days of eating and drinking are customary. And given the impossibility of eating and drinking for seven days, that would get boring. Lots of entertainment would go on too. So for Samson to be part of this as the groom and give a riddle was just part of the entertainment. And what he's got here seems to be you know, normal, lighthearted fun, I suppose. But it was a wager and it would include uh, linen garments and that's underwear. And then sets of clothing, that's the outerwear. It's a full, total wardrobe, inside and out. And the way it's all set up, he's, he stands to win 30 times the pot that these others do. He's betting 30 men one change of clothes. If he wins, he gets all 30. If he loses, he's got to pay up 30. But a lot of personal property is going to change hands you know, in this wager of sorts at some point by the end of this feast. But remember, who's working in the background looking for an opportunity to stick a wedge between the Hebrews and the Philistines? God is. And this is where it's going to be kicked off. This is going to turn sour in what looks like a, a deliberate provocation by Samson. And it will not end well. Look at verse 15. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is. Lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. That's kind of an offer she won't refuse. Have you invest, invited us here to impoverish us is their reasoning. Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. Boy, she's, she's, uh, she's got the starter kit for a good number one hit tune, doesn't she? Uh, you have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. He said to her, this is brilliant. Behold, I've not told my father or my mother. And shall I tell you? He's got a lot to learn. Uh, she wept before him the seven days of that feast. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. 
She told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him, On the seventh day before the sun went down. That's the last minute. What is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And that, depending on your translation, may be uh, copied down in what looks like poet, poetry form, maybe. Well, what he says to them is also poetry form, which is kind of his way of returning in like manner, quick on his feet. But what he says is awful. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Now, you know me by now. I've been at this for a year. Um, Points of Scripture are clearly pulled out of the passage of Scripture to help us not only understand but obey God's Word. This is just off the side advice from one man in history to everyone else. Don't call your wife a heifer. And don't imply that other men have been plowing with her. Um, that's not, not the way to start off a honeymoon. Which, which never happens, by the way. So many of you know the story of Samson and where it's going. It's hard not to see this episode as the lead up to another episode where he tells a greater secret to Delilah. Which is interesting because we just saw where the lion episode seems to be the prelude to a greater episode building confidence so that he can fight the Philistines where now he's being seen having his confidence and resolve torn down by one woman in order to give up the secret uh, at another time. So it's kind of like a coin with two sides. We can be built up by God for his purposes and at the same time we can tear all that down by our own flesh. And at the same time, who's sovereign over it all? And that would be God. So instead of waiting uh, for his anger to subside, he's lost this bet. Figuring out a way to settle with these men, uh, he acts in a way that could only drive him to the absolute top of the, of the list to enemy number one after what he does. Look at verse 19. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, And struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. So he loses the girl, he loses the bet, 30 men lose their lives and in this fit of rage, his debt is paid off but he's back home and wifeless basically. So there will be another episode done in like this. The the, the ante will be upped. And with his wife's return, the setting for the next chapter, his wife's return to her people and Samson returned to his people, there's plenty of space now between the opposing parties for God to work and to work miraculously. So at this point, what can we learn from this and where do we fit into this portion of Scripture. Uh, there's, there's all different types of things we could say, including what not to say to our brides-to-be. Um, but I think there's far more serious things here. Two of them that certainly uh, spoke to me personally and on the idea of this meaning more or something different to us as adults as it does as children. Samson's story here, among other things, teaches us God's total sovereignty over the details of our lives. In a way, I don't know we've ever seen in Scripture for reading from Genesis through here. Now, that God is sovereign is all over the account, but told like this, so close to home where we actually live, and the struggle between right and wrong and doing what we should do as opposed to not do, and how we actually do what we wouldn't, and we don't do what we would, Our impulse, rather, to reading this passage would be to attribute that slaughter of 30 men to cover the bet of a stupid riddle. We would want to say that that's just Samson acting in the flesh, isn't it? We'll go back and look at what the passage said. Verse 19, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town. 
Another uh, inconvenient point of explanation on the parents' part to (laughs) describe what's going on with Samson. Why would the Lord give him the strength to go be mean to people? I I could hear a child asking. Uh, Verse 19 insists that it was the Spirit of God. And then if that isn't enough, we just go back further. When it looked like his parents were very unavoidably headed for this collision with him and this girl that he had to have. They didn't know it, but God was looking to start a war. So we not only see God's sovereignty, we see his hand involved in this. We don't like this type of sovereignty, do we? I don't while I'm studying it. This seems to be the thrust of the passage. And I'm like thinking, all right, this was supposed to be the fun part of this series in Judges, right? No, this is the difficult part. This is where it gets right down where we live. Uh, What about when God calls a prophet named Hosea and tells him, my plans for you involve marrying a woman named Gomer who is a prostitute. And she's going to run off on you a lot. And through that, I'm going to demonstrate to my people, not through your teaching, but through your life, that my people have been running off on me like that for generations. And they're going to continue to do that. And through it all, I'm going to save them, despite it. How would you like to be Hosea? How would you like to be Gomer? They're in this too. What about the Apostle Paul, who was Saul before that? What would we expect out of the man who held the coats while they stoned the first martyr, Stephen? Uh, he's he's uh, marked for destruction on God's list, right? No, he's marked for acquisition. And he's going to become the most useful tool in God's uh, army. But then when Nero takes his head off, we wonder, what did Timothy and Titus and John Mark and Luke, what did they think? Was it time yet, or did he still have a lot more to write? Uh, God's sovereignty is not easily digestible by us. We, we, want, we like the part where, you know, good family has a, 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 a beautiful uh, bunch of children that grow up in a good home. They're always in church. Boy goes to seminary, learns how to preach, gets a lovely wife, raises, again, beautiful children. Lots of people are saved. Bury them in the church cemetery. That's God's sovereignty. No, it's God's sovereignty through all of this. So this is the second point here. The first one, Samson's story teaches us God's total sovereignty over the details of our life. Point number two, Samson's story teaches us the shocking costs of God's determination to save us. And a lot of times we're in on those costs. And not that God does these things indiscriminately. I'm 40 years old. Some would say, well, that's not old at all. Well, I'm halfway, as, as the, the statistics would tell us. And at this point, I'm looking at a lot of things a lot differently in my life than I did when I was younger. Or even at younger stages of a ministry. I'm, I'm a, a father and a husband. We've got children. They're looking up to me. I'm having discussions with children that are more like young people than children now, which is... That's an adjustment. And some of the things that I've learned, uh, and this passage has has helped me this week crystallize some of these things. Uh, Not all of what we see as a child looks the same as the way it is when we're adults. And uh, the greatest influence in my life along my ministry, along my, uh, my childhood and adulthood would be my father, you've heard me speak of him, and often worked for him for a while. Uh, but as far as watching what, as a child, I would have assumed to be God's man doing God's work, 
You know, as, as you grow up in a Christian home, you're, you're kind of in a bubble. When you grow up as a pastor's kid in a Christian home, it's even a tighter bubble. So all the things that you see and, and the places that you go, you feel like you live at church as much as you do uh, at home sometimes. There's these perceptions of things, and it really can build in your mind's eye uh, the way God works and moves. Only to later in life change. It's not that He's done anything different or changed the, the plan at all, but your perception of it. My father's effectiveness in ministry, I think, has a lot to do with his background. Every preacher, in addition to explaining Scripture and what it means, you have to explain to people how to obey it. You have to apply it. And the way you relate to other people has everything to do with, your, with how you were built, right? Your past. And some background on my father that you might not be aware of was that he came from a bitterly broken home. Not at all the way I was raised. For the longest time, I had no clue what any of that was about. I'd hear his stories, but no reference point for them. I didn't know how it felt. But there was uh, an afternoon when he was eight years old, standing under an oak tree with his three other sisters, where other members of the family drove up at different times in different vehicles and took his three sisters to different locations, some as far as the state of Florida, And for some time, he wouldn't see them. He was given to his grandmother. He called her Mama. And she was crazy about him. She loved him. That's how you grow a normal kid. One person, at least one person, has to be crazy about them. And that's how he was able to succeed. But not without growing up in school with with not a parent but a guardian, you know, on a piece of paper at school. That's That's different. Or when other people's parents would do this or that, he wondered if he'd ever see his. He'd see his daddy in the grocery store occasionally. And one uh, time I heard he saw that he saw him and then uh, walked away because it's just complicated. Uh, He worked for the fire department, a volunteer, so dad would wonder what it would be like to pull the fire alarm. Maybe that way I can get to see my daddy. Desperate measures. He didn't do it. But it's, it's just a different background. I mean, uh, one situation he explained where he played football for Graham High and was good at it, and he hit hard. But one time he got hit hard too. First time he didn't get right up. And uh, when he opened his eyes, he said, laying on his back in the f- middle of the field, it was his mama, his grandmother, in her dress with her pocketbook, wanting to know who hit him. Uh, <laughs> And in front of the whole stands of people. You know, this is, is his grandmother there. It's, it's different. And then as I began to age, I learned that his ability to connect with people was because of the fact that he's not the only one that lived in an environment like that. Not everyone was raised like me. There are others. And I heard a fellow a few years ago who was a, a special operations uh, military. Uh, and he, he was at that point retired and helping people with post-traumatic stress disorder. He said, there are people who will admire you for your accomplishments. And Dad had quite a list of accomplishments. Uh, no one who knew him when he was young expected much out of him. But to accomplish what he did was, was something. But the fellow went on to say, they will admire you for your accomplishments, but they will relate to you because of your pain. And I thought, that's, that's very true. The reason why my father's ministry and his effect on thousands of lives, I think was namely, not because of the good days of his childhood, but the bad ones. All those afternoons alone with his dog, which is the only one that understood him, waiting for him at the bus, those days were the ones that built this pastor that God had marked him for. And here I am trying to think my way through how God uses good days and bad days and the costs involved with it. 
I think the costs are still actually accruing. Because the life of a minister is not an easy one. It takes its toll. I think you can use up a man a little quicker than, than, than other occupations. There's just so much passion and energy and fire in one's bones through his heart and his head before he's burned out. And at what cost? To him and his family and all that are around him. But the point of this story tells me, though the costs are high... Two things. They're no higher than what was required of God's only son. Who was going to pay for all the forgiveness. For him to say forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It was his life that would pay for that statement. But second of all. None of those costs are in vain. Right. Because they are all involved in God's determination to save us. The costs sometimes are shocking, but they're never in vain. You've got a parent who's grieving over the loss of a child God gave them, and now they're gone because of some nightmare twist of of decisions. Their grief is not in vain. Now, how do I know where it all fits and what the purpose of it is? Sometimes we don't. Samson's parents didn't. And only through years of ministry am I able to look at someone as important to me as my father and understand the reasoning behind the costs involved and how pain purchases the right to be heard and the gift to present the gospel. That's how that works. So, costly but not in vain. Wayward child, a a broken relationship in your past unfinished plans that you had. There's no other way to describe them as as pain. But God is totally sovereign over our lives, every detail. And they all fit within His determination to save us all. That said, let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a heavy sermon with heavy implications and requires of us that we handle these things with a a sobriety that perhaps we're not expected every Sunday. But Lord, I'm sure that there are those in here listening that can identify with this, can identify with a broken man seems to be wild and out of control and breaking people's hearts as much as he is settling scores. And Lord, there are those that are faithful over a long period of time. And maybe it seems as if there's no recognition or praise for that. Like a hero who dies and a celebrity gets all the press. But Lord, you're faithful. You're just You're good and you're kind. And all the questions that we have now that you choose not to answer. Lord, the thought of you wiping away our last tear is something that should endear us to you. When we learn that you meant it for good, even though others might have meant it for ill. Lord, seal your word to our hearts. Deal with us according to your truth. Wrap us up in your embrace. We ask all this in your name. Amen.